Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Adrian Rose Batar, the author of Diet and the Disease of Civilization. Adrian, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I'm wondering if you could start by just sharing a little bit about how this book came about, how you got interested in the topic of looking at diet books and, and writing this. Diet books have always been on the periphery, as I imagine for many Americans, of of my development as a reader. Um, They were sort of a permanent fixture in my house, and I suspect a ubiquitous feature in many American households because of their enormous popularity. Um, I was a pretty democratic reader growing up. I sort of love the printed word, uh, no matter how it appeared in catalogs or coupon books or diet books. And there was something magical and very attractive about the diet book narrative, um, especially the Atkins series, which was popular when I was a teenager. Um, the sort of the ability to transform yourself, I think is very appealing to an adolescent. And then when I studied food in college and I transitioned to my PhD in modern thought and literature at Stanford, I sort of brought that open-mindedness and recognized that diet books, even though they're very much on the, you know, the periphery of literature, if we can <laughs> call it that, deserve recognition as a distinct genre not only because of their massive popularity, but because they are, if you're looking at boots on the ground practices of readership, this is what Americans are reading. Um, You know, there's 20 million copies of the Atkins series sold. Um, So looking at these books as like the actual material, the printed word, the sort of practices of literary imagination that everyday Americans are engaging with, Um, That's what attracted me to the project as a scholar. But what kept me through it, through my seven years of my PhD, was the profundity of the stories. Um, I really came to recognize that diet books articulated powerful and deep-seated narratives about, you know, all the things that make the world worth thinking about, about God and man and nature and culture and science and human health and the American project, just like any work of literature does. So I, for a number of reasons, I felt like I was fated for this book and um, that diet books themselves are uh, a really important and feature and sort of a magical literary genre that deserves recognition. And so you go through and look at sort of four major genres of diet book. But before we sort of get into those, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you're reading them, right? You're reading them through this perspective of culture and how they sort of impact and think about who we are. And so can you talk a little bit about that, um, 
viewpoint that you came into this with before we sort of dive into the different diets you looked at? It was really difficult to sort of collect an archive and to understand my approach. Um, there's been really great work done on um, self-help and um, like romance novels, dime store novels um, that shows the sort of the literary approach to ephemera or, you know, works that are sort of outside the literary canon is challenging. Like you have to approach them not necessarily as, you know, highbrow critics. Like if you're a highbrow critic criticizing a diet book, like that that analysis is going to last like 10 minutes because it's really formulaic and oftentimes not sort of, um, uh, it's very sincere and formulaic and not um, ironic at all. So it was difficult for me as a scholar to approach them with the tools I had as, you know, trained in literature and trained in food studies, trained in history. Um, and I had to remember like the sort of open-minded and sincere reading practices I had as a as growing up, which was to read them like thoroughly and imagine myself um, as if I were a dieter and not, you know, a critic. And the easy, it was very, very easy to do because diet books are so compelling. And I think anyone reading them sort of falls victim to the seductive language of, you know, this is the story of mankind and I sympathize with you and together we can like reform your body and remake your diet and sort of reclaim your true potential <laughs> and save the world. It's a really attractive story and as a reader, uh, especially even after reading hundreds of these, I couldn't resist it every time. Like I couldn't resist that story. Like I still love reading diet books. Um, <laughs> it's just, they're, they're really like attractive and um, fun narratives of transformation. And so you look at these sort of different genres or, or different types of diet books. So you start with looking at the paleo diet and sort of the, the going hearkening back to the cavemen. So can you talk a bit about those, the books that fall under that category and, and what you were trying to do in that chapter? It took me a while to come up with a sort of um, guiding narrative that unified all these diets. I first looked at the 17,000 <laughs> separate diet titles archived in WorldCat and sort of peeled out um, different narratives. So, and it, I had to dis, uh, discard some along the way. So like I discarded like the diets for particular diseases, like the testicular cancer diet or the breast cancer diet. And I sort of filtered out the, the, like the snake oil salesmen and the commercially motivated diets, like the Domino sugar diet, um, the Welch's grape juice diet. And I had to sort of piece together the narrative diets. And the first narrative that stuck out to me, especially because I was writing this in uh, 2014, 2015, was the paleo plan. And when I saw the paleo diet and I tracked that history out over the last 100 years, then the narrative of the diet genre on the whole became apparent. And that was the narrative of the fall of man, which is, as I'm sure you know, it's like the most most common literary device in sort of Western history um, that, you know, once 
once we lived in God's grace or in a state of nature of peace and prosperity and health, but then something happened. Um, and in the paleo case, it was the invention of agriculture, the development of civilization, permanent settlement, uh, the domestication of crops and um, cattle particularly. So we fell from that state of grace and now we're in this sort of pit of disease and despair. But as long as we um, work hard in the present, we can recapture that past and improve our now. So it's a narrative of human development and the, the sort of processes of human civilization. So when I saw the paleo plan, then the other narratives sort of revealed themselves of those 17,000 titles I first looked at. And then I was able to narrow down the 17,000 into like five, 600 um, individual freestanding books. And that's where I was able to piece out the other parts. And so it was interesting in reading your chapter on that paleo diet, and you talk about gender in other areas in the book as well, but that idea of the role of sort of how gendered that diet had become and how that diet sort of looks at and um, I don't want to say plays with gender, I'm not really sure what to say, but how it sort of talks about gender and, and how it engages folks. And so can you talk a little bit about that idea and what this, what narrative this diet is, you know, pushing in those ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the paleo diet is very much the product of like a post-obesity epidemic um, uh, controversy because it appeals largely to a, like a gender neutral audience. So I say gender neutral because even though the language is very masculine, if you actually look at the division of uh, paleo dieters or ancestral health adherents, um, it's pretty much equally split between men and women. But that is um, extraordinary in the history of dieting because uh, women have so overwhelmingly composed the majority of dieters pre-obesity epidemic. So I'd say this is like the late 90s, early 2000s. So when you get the paleo people coming onto the scene in the, like, you know, 2010, 2011, it was very easy to um, market themselves as a diet for men uh, because men and women were sort of um, uh, both suffering the effects of the obesity epidemic. So it became a more collective concern. So it was e easier to sort of beat your chest and promote this virile diet of like high protein meats and vegetables um, and attract a male audience. And the paleo diet also harkens back to sort of stereotypes about caveman masculinity and the role of the hunter and the hunter gatherer, you know, division of labor um, that, brings us back to like figures um, in the earlier 20th century, like Arctic explorers and um, sort of colonial adventurers, like living off the land. Like you can even think about like Teddy Roosevelt um, and eating a really high fat, high protein diet of hunted meat. So there's like the hunting, there's the post obesity epidemic narrative about, um, you know, our collective health problems and um, the sort of adventurer explore narrative about um, sort of the wilderness and men's essential nature. Like it was just a really easy sell in that particular historic moment to, to create a masculine diet. Mm 
Yeah, one thing, because I can see the book and people who are listening might not be able to see it, is through, in every chapter you have these images that sort of show and present each diet and representations. And there's one of the paleo diet that is this march of progress where you see the caveman and then you see um, a fat man holding, you know, a soda and then crippled over. And then the paleo brings them back to looking like strong and masculine. And that was one of my like favorite depictions in the book. I was so thrilled to see that because it articulated the, the narrative that unified these 17,000 diet books in one concrete image. And you do a great job of describing it. It riffs on that 1965 um, March of Progress. It's you know so iconic. It's been parodied a million times. Where you see the, you know the the ape like ancestor marching slowly on the page, like left to right, growing taller and smarter and bigger and stronger. Um, but the paleo diet, like the other diets, completely turns that narrative like upside down. Like you see from left to right the you know, the caveman getting taller and stronger and bigger and smarter and more masculine, et cetera, and then descending into our current state. So he's getting heavier, obese, you could say, holding a soda. And then in the middle figure, he's like actually on crutches, um, uh, facing the viewer, facing the reader. But then the really important moment comes, the pivotal moment where that sort of obese crippled figure like is revitalized and shifted back into that original march so we see the recapture of the like original caveman health um and i love it because it encapsulates this larger story about the progress of humankind and human civilization yeah and and i loved it like looking at the photo like when you when they start at the beginning the caveman had the beard and the scruffy hair but then when we get to the end he's clean shaven but he still looks exactly (laughs) like the caveman (laughs) yeah so you move from so you move from the paleo diet to sort of devotional diets and and diets that are like christian weight loss books and so i'm wondering if you can talk which was my i found the most fascinating chapter because I just did not realize the extent to which, and for the length of time, for the amount of time that we've had these sort of Christian weight loss diets and journeys. And so can you talk a little bit about that, um, that group of texts and what you saw in there? Food and eating has been central to pretty much all major world religions. So it makes a really heavy, like yeasty topic for diet books. Um, If you think about diet more broadly, like vegetarianism, the laws of kosher and halal, um, you know, the, the, the prohibitions against um, like gluttony, for example, or lusting after food, like really form a core identity for, you know, major world religions. And in Christianity in particular, the earlier diets oftentimes didn't address body weight explicitly, but rather railed on um, on Christians for engaging in the sins of gluttony and lusting after food, even though that didn't necessarily correlate with heavier body weight in that sort of construct. But starting in the 1950s, there's there was a explicitly Christian weight loss diet genre started by um, 
a minister named Charlie Shedd. And it was really rough. Um, he was not kind to his readers. He like, he, he drew on his own experience, but he, like many of his contemporaries, like mocked and humiliated overweight people for being gluttons. Um, there was another book at the same time who, that recounted like that awful poem, um, fatty, fatty, two by four, can't get through the kitchen door. Like really these sort of horrific narratives of humiliation and shame. Um, and from that position of shame and acknowledging that they were gluttons, um, urged their readers to reform both their relationship to God, but also their relationship to food. So there was a lot of uh, material coming out of the 50s, 60s that argued like that Christians were sort of eating their emotions, like they didn't have a natural or healthy relationship to God or nature. So they were like poisoning themselves by engaging in these sins of gluttony. So it was really like a... A, a sort of a sad and unkind story about overweight as its relation to, to gluttony. But starting in the 90s, there's this big pivotal moment in the 90s for all these diets. Um, it's the so-called like onset of the obesity epidemic. Then these diets became a lot more optimistic. Um, we have things like Rick Warren's Daniel Plan or... Um, uh, the various like Christian fitness groups like Body for God or Holy Fit um, that enlisted all Christians, like fat or thin, sick or healthy, to improve the health of the nation, to pr- improve the health of Christians at large. Because religious Christians do have a higher obesity, weight, uh, obesity rate than Americans on the whole, but also because these the obesity epidemic was read as like a Jeremiah, as a, a sort of crisis of not only of the nation, but of like the Christian project, um, that an obese congregation couldn't be a good congregation. So there was mo- like moves to reform like church practices, like, you know, having healthier uh, Sunday picnics or um, um, using physical exercise as sort of an expression for, of your devotion. And, in the 90s, they sort of picked up and totally changed their attitude towards uh, dieters in particular. Um, so with that pivotal moment, I, I sort of pick up my analysis of Christian or Edenic diets. Right. And it's interesting. There's a, there's a great deal, like you're talking about, about this idea of like, how does like God has created you, you know, God wants you to be this way, right? God wants you to be thin. God wants you to be, but healthy, but for, but healthy meaning thin, right. Or to, to be on a diet. And this is the way that you're sort of listening to God throughout these Christian diets as well, that sort of engaged people in both the diet culture as well as Christianity. The relationship between like God and food and nature is really intimately um, intertwined in the idea that our palates have been hijacked by the food industry. So you see this in other diets too, but it takes on like a, a real resonance in the, the Edenic diets because the argument is, is that God's instincts are in you to be healthy. 
And those are indelible. Those have been passed down from Adam and Eve. Like our instinctual preference for godly, healthy foods that will keep us like thin and in good health are embedded into like the biology, into the fabric of our bodies. The argument is, is that the modern food industry has hijacked those instincts for their own profit. So the sort of hyper palatable combinations of fat, sugar, and salt have assaulted our bodies and we're no longer able to, to read taste. It's kind of a philosophical argument. So it's saying that because we live in this um, you know, over-civilized world, we've lost touch with our, the instincts that God embedded in us. And now we don't taste, for example, a strawberry as sweet. If we grew up with Snickers bars and uh, Dunkin' Donuts, that's our conception of sweet. Like That's our um, method of calibration of what sweetness should be. And with that like twisted or perverse way to calibrate taste, now like a god a godly strawberry is bitter. <laughs> so the argument for these books, and it, it may actually have some validity, is that if you wean yourself off of like the hyper palatable combinations that the food industry has developed over the last 50 years or so, and return to just natural, so-called natural flavors, then your palate will readjust and you'll be able to taste like natural flavors for, you know, sweetness and saltiness and, you know, fatty mouthfeel that, you know, are present in, you know, fruits and vegetables and meats. Um, so it's a philosophical argument, but I actually, but there are doctors that recommend it. And um, if anyone's ever like cut off all processed foods for a week or two, you might recognize that process where, you know, you'll taste a strawberry or an avocado after two weeks and the avocado will taste like really creamy um, or strawberry will taste like really sweet. And then Coke or a Twinkie or ice cream tastes like kind of gummy or like fake tasting. So it's a, it's a, powerful argument i would say yeah there's a, i think there was a piece in this chapter about like eating the carrot and just feeling it like move down your throat kind of thing <laughs> and that's another aspect to these books that hasn't really been discussed because after the 90s there's this language of like sensual deliciousness that characterizes the edenic diets the devotional diets that was completely absent in those earlier, like humiliating, shameful books. And a lot of scholars have said, oh, you know, diet culture is a descendant of sort of Puritan, like prudishness. Like diet culture is about denying yourself deliciousness and denying yourself satiety and denying yourself the ability to sort of like be enraptured by taste. But if you actually look at these devotional diets, like put out by, you know, the you know the highest religious leaders in American Christianity, they do luxuriate oftentimes in a sort of sensual or a kind of like sexual language of deliciousness. Like there was a passage about like the green, the green globes of like natural cabbage <laughs> bursting on your tongue and this like explosion of like bitterness and taste and like they're actually like fun and sensual renderings of like delicious foods that you wouldn't expect in a like strictly Christian weight loss diet when you think about 
the prohibition against like gluttony and sloth in traditional Christian discussions of food and eating. Yeah. And it seems like those are this, it's like very much if when you eat this, you'll really taste what is made, like God has made kind of thing, right? It's this natural taste that you get to be, be with God, but in these very like, yes, sexual connotations in these sexualized ways. Mm -hmm. And I may have cherry picked some of the better ones (laughs) for the book. (laughs) So Um, most of the diets I would say do sort of respect food in a very like sincere way. And the ones I put out were probably more, um, extravagant (laughs) than, than the mainstream. But it's still, but there's still that history there, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So you move then from these, the paleo diet, the Christian diet to looking at, um, this sort of primitive diets and, and, and wanting to, which, which you um, look at as different than the paleo diet, but this sort of what westernization did to Pacific Islanders and, and how people are sort of using primitive um, Western Islanders diets to sort of bring them back to being healthy. And so can you talk a little bit about those, those primitive diets and what you saw there? They're the third piece on this larger narrative. So if we were to first think about, you know, what is mankind's state of original health? Many would locate it in the cave, you know, in the cave and sort of this like evolutionary origin story, we were first healthy. And then other religious people would say, you know, actually, it wasn't evolution. It was in the Garden of Eden that we were originally healthy. Um, And then this third stage more like liberal, I guess, um, politically minded people would say, actually, it's the processes of colonialism and the development of the food industry that has corrupted our um, natural foodways and brought about the obesity epidemic um, and the other concomitant you know, epidemics of non-communicable disease. So in this case, um, you can see it more popularly for example, in like the Mediterranean diet or the Okinawa diet. But I chose to look at the Pacific Islands diets, like the Hawaii diet, because of their sort of real world significance. Um, Because, you know, native Hawaiians have some of the highest rates of diabetes and obesity in the world, whereas non-native Hawaiians or Hawaiians of different ethnic descents um, have earned the reputation of as the health state. So there's real sort of health disparities in the Pacific islands. Um, and that's what makes it such a like heavy and difficult discussion of promoting a weight loss diet based on some mythic conception of how natives originally lived. And it seems like there has been a long history of, Americans or others going into sort of these spaces, native spaces, and studying and then bringing back sort of what they're seeing and what kind of diets they're seeing that you sort of lay out. Can you talk a little bit about those sort of precursors for this modern um, move to looking at these diets? It's surprising. I was struck that even as far back as the 1880s, 1890s, there were diet reformers looking, for example, at um, Inuits or how they were just uh, Inuits or Native Americans uh, as models of sort of like pre- it, it, it indulges in all sorts of language we don't talk about 
in the same way today, but like in pre-civilized modes. And of course, no civilization is like a living fossil, but they were, but diet reformers like Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg of, you know, cornflakes fame, or um, uh, a little bit later on, Weston Price were looking at sort of pre-civilized tribes or civilizations to to learn how, um, you know, to, to learn about native food ways. Um, so the best example of this is the American dentist, Weston Price, and he still has a pretty wide following today. Um, he was active in the 1930s, and he published his biggest book in 1939, where he's kind of like an Indiana Jones of nutrition. He journeyed all over the world with his wife um, to Africa, to Switzerland, and it wasn't necessarily like racially based. He went to France and Germany um, Canada, Mexico, all over the world, documenting the effects of so-called Western diet, but largely processed sugar on like native populations. Um, and in particular, documenting the incidence of uh, dental cavities based on that transition to Western diet. So his book is like rich with these haunting photos of I guess they're dental photographs of people from around the world in the 1930s with their gums exposed and their mouths sort of enlarged to see the rates of uh, dental cavities. And as you can imagine, the visual results are striking. Like you'll see, for example, um, a Kenyan and that had been eating so-called a traditional diet let's say in the 19 early 1930s with like really even white clean teeth like a strong jaw and then weston price contrasts that with um someone who had you know has poor crooked teeth and what he considered to be an abnormal jaw so it's really difficult to reconcile the like thorny and like ugly politics of this project with what a lot of public health researchers today and activists and indigenous activists are campaigning for a return to um, native foodways. Um, so it's really, really complicated political public health issues um, that stretch back like 150 years. And there's really good work being done by like Hawaiian activists. Um, and um, there's, there's activists of the Pima tribe in uh, Southern Arizona and um, Northern Mexico on that, on the U S Mexico border that are trying to sort of um, reject uh a lot of American agricultural products and processed foods and return to a diet more typical of their ancestors. Um, and Westerners have long looked at these as sort of a model for diet reform. So just because there's the Hawaiian diet, the Hawaii diet modeled after native health uh, traditions, it's marketed to a wide audience. You know, that book took off on the mainland and, it, it had a wide following of, you know, people from all different descents looking towards this supposedly traditional uh, Native Hawaiian diet to help them lose weight. Well, and one of the things you do, and I thought was really helpful, too, was sort of showing how colonialism, like you give the example of the Naru, 
Am I pronouncing that mm-hmm. right? The mo- mm-hmm. like how the British came in and just sort of wiped out the land, and now they have much wealth from the phosphorus mining, but it's also sort of destroyed where they destroyed that space. And sort of what does that then mean for what they can and cannot eat and and what they have access to and and those kinds of things as well is really important to think about when you look at these sort of diets in these books. Mm -hmm. That story is um, pretty tragic and it does bring to light the actual like political problems that, you know, the colonial interests not only introduce these foodstuffs, you know, like canned meats and turkey tails and these, you know, unhealthy concoctions, but the reason why those concoctions found a ready market is because the colonial interests had taken away their land, like literally strip-mined it uh, for, as you mentioned, the phosphate deposits. So it's this sort of... It's, it's a very unpalatable combination of, well, I can't return to my native foodways because, first of all, no one can go back in history and everyone's a citizen of the modern world and no one's a living fossil. And I think none of us here want to return back to, you know, the foodways of the 19th century United States either because it's, you know, we enjoy our modern conveniences. But also, even if that impulse was there, um, it's impossible to farm the land like they once did because the British and the Australians had um, such a strong hand in overdeveloping the land. Like Hawaii is also a good example of this. Like there's, there's very little way you can sort of recapture, for example, the fishing practices of 150 years ago because of overfishing and because, you know, people have better things to do with their time now than, you know, a, to then try to fish all day, especially if the waters are overfished. So it's all a myth of like returning to a mythic past and everyone lives in the present. So it's very complicated racial politics where some people are considered more modern than others. Um, And you can see this also in like the blood type body type diets too, Mm -hmm. um, in which like some human beings are ranked as like more contemporary and more suited to the fruits of modern food production and some human beings are considered like more uh, suited to like unprocessed foods because they're not like fully participating in the modern world. It's really obscure and kind of full of quackery and sort of ugly racist politics. No, I found that really fascinating. This idea that we can determine by your blood type, what kind of foods are going to be best for you or where you live. Right. Like, and that these aren't, texts that were coming out 40 and 50 and 60 years ago, right? These are much more um, contemporary texts that are returning to some of these ideas that, yes, your blood type, or if we know where you where your ancestry is from, then that's going to determine what you should be eating or what you're sort of predestined to be and look like anyway. It's fascinating because, as you mentioned, it, these things sound old. <laughs> I know. I was like, like, no, they're not that. They're not that old. <laughs> yeah, they they're reminiscent of like Weston Price, who's using all this ugly language. But actually, these, especially the nutritional um, genomics and the bespoke genetic diets, um, are like completely contemporary. Like the eat right for your type, what was recently revised in 2016. And in it, and this is a massively popular book, I think it sold 7 million copies, he categorizes p- 
people not only by their blood type, blood type, but said like blood type O stands for old. So those people should only eat old foods. Like they can't eat processed foods manufactured by the food industry. But type AB is the type that's a metaphor for modern life. So type AB blood type people um, can eat like Snickers and Twinkies and hamburgers safely, but type O cannot because they're older than us. Like it's very strange. (laughs) And then he also has this weird language of like interbreeding and like mixed, like mixed blood types that sounds sort of like the language of like miscegenation and like this old, like, outdated racism that somehow gets a pass because it's in a diet book. And I'm like kind of surprised why no one has objected to this before. Um, And I'm a little bit fearful and I didn't put this in the book, but all this language about the bespoke DNA diets, like also bring this up in full fury. Like some people are better suited to, modern foods and some people are better suited to primitive foods because Mm -hmm. the assumption is that they are primitive. So just like the white nationalists are doing the 23 and me, like there is this weird sort of undercover racism that's hiding out. that's lurking in these gene diets that are like on the market now. So I suspect in the next few years, I'm going to have another chapter to add (laughs) to this book. Yeah, no, that was really fascinating because I was like, well, you know, this should not be. Yes. Right. (laughs) Like, and that people, and the fact that like people are buying it in like droves, right. That you're not looking at it thinking like, why, why would I want this? Why do I, (laughs) but (laughs) because diet books get a pass for everything. It's like, Oh, if it works, it must be good. But then it's like, well, it can work, I guess, but you have to like subscribe to a philosophy and this is the philosophy itself might be dangerous. Just like, and don't get me wrong too. A lot of diet books have uh, been, have articulated very racist philosophies about human health. Like that 1975 paleo diet Mm -hmm. was a eugenicist text that advocated for euthanizing imperfect newborns um, to like head off the population explosion. So that's the same diet that said we should all eat dolphins Mm -hmm. um, and endangered animals because human beings are the superior race and we need to like cull inferior animals like dolphins and we have to cull inferior like infants who are like blind or handicapped. So it was really ugly and like really, um, it's sort of a terrible and like, um, shameful precedent for the paleo movement today. And I think it's been largely disavowed or it's been entirely disavowed. It's a, it's not a good book to read. Um, and it's, uh, it, it exposes a lot of this sort of racist or eugenicist uh, underpinnings of like the blood type diets today or the DNA diets. Mm-hmm. And and then so you move into this sort of final group of diets, which is, you know, and move us into the law. I, you know, what I, I think you're saying, but I also see it's like one of the biggest fads right now is this detoxification. Um, and, and you do this and you've talked throughout our interview, but this is where you really look at how politics plays out, right. Um, in this diet culture. And so can you talk a bit about that detoxification diets and, and what's going on there and what you see with, um, that relationship to sort of food addiction and as well as like the politics of it? 
The detox is very much like in common cultural currency. And one of the reasons it was so easy to approach was because it was political, it's environmental, it's rejecting environmental toxins and pollution, and also the sort of amorphous metaphor of what a modern toxin is, so like noise pollution or stress or family discord or overwork. You know, there's all sorts of ways we conceptualize toxins that far exceed, you know, mercury and fish or environmental pollutants at large. Um, and detox is that final step on this four-part structure, which is, you know, were we originally healthy in the cave? Were we originally healthy in the Garden of Eden? Were we originally healthy before colonialism, globalization? And this last step is the most contemporary because it's saying, you know, we may have been originally healthy like in the 1960s before industrialization um, and the mass production of of processed foods um, came into play in our sort of modern food habits. And it also is a really easy topic to approach because detox, you know, whether or not it's actually true, markets itself as a sort of purification plan that um, isn't necessarily about weight loss. So many people confess up more easily to be like, oh, I'm detoxing. That's why I'm, you know, forsaking like gluten or alcohol or caffeine, not because I'm trying to lose weight. Because in today's world, as I'm sure everyone knows, it's not exactly stylish to say I'm, you know, I'm on Weight Watchers and I'm counting points. Um, it's not, it doesn't jibe with like the, you know, body positivity and uh, body diversity language, even though I believe the beauty ideals are still just as strict. It's just sort of marketed in a different way. So detox picks up a lot of the political uh, movement from alternative food in the 60s and 70s with like vegetarianism and diet for a small planet, evaluating the environmental impact of agriculture, especially the environmental costs of livestock production, which is enormous. Um, And it segues into, you know, the more contemporary push towards veganism, um, different segments of the alternative food movement today, like fresh, local, organic, sustainable, seasonal, um, ways that reevaluate the food system, not only in terms of human health, but also the environment and ethics. Um, it brings together the whole sort of moral uh, obligation we have to evaluating the food system and our participation as eaters and producers and sellers um, in a holistic way in which we can't just say, you know, we need fiber to prevent against colorectal cancer and lose weight. It's like, well, you know, we have to evaluate the source of fiber. You know, if it's eight grams and an apple, that's not enough. It's like, well, where is that apple grown? How is it grown? Is there pesticide residue? Who picked it? How far was it shipped? Like, what was the cold storage like? Like if it's in an apple pie, like how much is our waitress tipped? Like w- let's think about the sub-minimum wage. Like there's all these other implications towards food and eating that gets wrapped up in detox that articulates the sort of political impulse of what could be merely regarded as like a like a superficial eating plan. Right. And you sort of look at then the foodie movement and its relationship to sort of this 
um, toxic food environment and what's going on there. And so can you talk a little bit too about that sort of the foodie and, and this relationship to this um, idea of toxic food? The, the language of toxicity um, and food really came up in like the eighties, early nineties when in fact, like this, it, the detox is cool because there are facts that back it up, kind of like the primitive diet, the pre-colonial diet does as well. Like it's true that the environmental impact of agriculture and livestock production is hurting our environment in very real and very tangible ways. And these diets will alleviate that impact. Um, and it's also true that a lot of the foods we eat today have toxins in them, however we want to define them as metaphor or as sort of scientifically defined substances. But it's dangerous, and public health researchers agree, like it's dangerous the amount of mercury uh, present in a lot of fish. And this detox movement ties the health of the individual to the health, not only of the community, like we saw in the Eden diets, um, and not only the species we saw in the paleo diets, but also the environment. Um, so it's saying, you know, I can be really selfish and say I'm not going to eat tuna with mercury in it, but it's also in my best interest to make sure the entire food system is clean, to use the popular word, is clean and just and ethical because I can't help but be implicated in it. Um, so in that way, I feel like and detox does something really valuable for the environmental movement at large because it's able to use what could be a very selfish motivation to like enlist support for noble and grand ideas. Like many people might turn to veganism because they're trying to lose weight or they're trying to be trendy or it sort of has, you know, cultural capital at the time. Um, and it may not work for any of that. It, you know, it, the, the trend might stop. It's kind of become passe and mocked and it probably won't help you lose weight, but in very real terms, it will lessen the environmental impact of your food choices. So kind of no matter what the motivation is, I think it's doing a good thing. Um, and it's difficult to argue with that. Um, and it kind of also revives, some of the mockery that's been hurled at the food movement um, for being like trendy and superficial. Um, you know, you can think about like Gwyneth Paltrow's goop or her, um, you know, Beyonce's lemonade detox. Um, it, it's, there's sort of not fair assaults because the history of weight loss shows like you can be sort of superficially trying to lose five pounds, but also be ascribing um, to enormously deep, and um, profound philosophies about human health. And in the case of detox, you could actually be, be doing good for the environment. So um, detox, de yeah, detox is a wonderfully like politically poignant mix of superficial weight loss, like deep-seated environmental activism, concern about sometimes about like ethics and morals, but it articulates a larger idea that we as eaters are implicated in larger food systems. That it's no longer a simple choice of, you know, me choosing apple over like uh, McDonald's apple pie squares. It's I'm choosing to support a system that produces either McDonald's or, you know, an apple 
if, you know, or, or an organic, fresh, local, organic, sustainable, seasonal apple. Right. So there's different methods of being involved in the food system. Well, it, so in you sort of end your book, your conclusion sort of brings us to like, what does that mean, right? Like you talk about this idea of um, a move from dieting to a healthier lifestyle and how um, and, and having sustainable products, how the the growth of of food chains like Chipotle um, and how McDonald's is losing business to places like that. And so in that conclusion, what are you like in looking at these and looking at these trends, like what are you seeing this all like this sort of narratives and this history is sort of saying about our culture right now? This, and as a historian, I probably shouldn't say this, (laughs) but this moment is, I feel pivotal. You know, historians are always supposed to look back and say, you know, you know, for everyone, you know, in everyone's lifetime, their lifetime is the most important lifetime that's ever lived. Mm -hmm. But I do see the culmination of a lot of different trends that have been percolating, like that has been bubbling in the stories we tell about food, our food practices, our food choices. Um, And the numbers, the business numbers really support that. Like dairy milk, you'd think that is a just mainstay of the American diet. But plant-based milks, their business is going, growing by like 25% a year, whereas dairy milk is at like all-time lows. Like it's, it lost 7% of its market, I think, last year. Soda, like what can be more iconic than a bottle of Coke? Soda <laughs> is declining. What's going up in its place? Like a lot of times it's tap water or bottled water. Um, even Weight Watchers, Lean Cuisine... These are businesses that you would think would be absolutely invincible if you were to study, you know, from the 1970s to the 1990s, even the early 2000s. But now they're all suffering. I think um, the food industry is is at a loss. Um, there's greater diversity of, you know, different food companies. There's alternative meats right now, which has captured the public imagination, like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. Um, you know, veganism and vegetarianism, if they're not mainstreamed, at least most Americans know about these alternative food practices. Um, it's it's kind of an exciting time to be thinking about food from a critical perspective, especially from a business perspective. And I'm not sure what's next for diets. Uh, one thing I suspect isn't going away. It's just getting masked is this language of like health and wellness oftentimes is used as a euphemism for what we would just consider weight loss like 20 years ago. Um, And a lot of like wellness plans today are marketing themselves or conceptualizing themselves as markedly different from, you know, the fuddy duddy weight watchers or, you know, even the Mediterranean diet of, you know, 20 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, but it's not true. Like if you look at the actual books and you look at the actual plans, it's just a continuous, like a continuation of the politicization of the diet book. And in a lot of the diets today, this, this sort of veneer of health and wellness reveals itself to be a quest for weight loss and beauty too. And not that there's anything like wrong with that, but it should be acknowledged that it's not markedly different from 20 years ago. 
the diet plans themselves. But what is markedly different is the food movement at large. And that's our attention to ethics and the environment and methods of production, labor. That is more reminiscent of the sort of iconoclastic alternative food movement from the 60s. Now I think it's mainstreamed um, into a greater awareness of our food systems like by the American public at large. And hopefully that'll mean changes in how we sort of approach and think about our food and the people who make our food and where we get our food. Mm -hmm. I do see um, it is changing so fast. I'm not sure what diets are going to look like in 10 years, but I suspect a joke. Like I think the next big diet will be the lentil diet. Like there's something (laughs) that combines like kind of this alternative hippie stuff with eating down the food chain with beauty claims of like clear skin and renewed vitality um, and weight loss altogether um, and ethics and it all has to come together with environment and ethic ethics and beauty and weight. And that'll be like the big diet. And then mm-hmm. maybe some genetic, genetic like pseudoscience mixed into. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which apparently is the key to making your diet really famous. Um, yes. Anyway, so, I won't be writing that diet book though. Someone else needs to. <laughs> well, this has been really fascinating. Um, are you working on anything right now that you want to talk about? Or are you just sort of like getting your book I, out there? I am um, trying to write some uh, mainstream articles. I'm really interested in the alternative meats and the history of meat substitutes for uh, uh, um how the federal government has pr- promoted meat substitutes, especially during the world wars and how that relates to the meat analogs today. I'm also really, I really want to do an article on a, a freestanding original article on the blood type diets mm. um, and that complicated politics. And there's a few other ideas bubbling, um, but uh, I'm not done with, with, with diet books yet. They're, <laughs> They're too fun. Yeah, they're too meaningful. Well, Adrian, thank you. Again, this is Adrian Rosebatar, who is the author of Diet and the Disease of Civilization. Thanks for talking with me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs>